Thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity just to hear from um, our, our brothers and sisters, Lord, and what you are doing in other places around the world, in particular in Bolivia. But Lord, would you now draw our attention to your word and help us, Lord, to, to see what it is that you desire for us to see, Lord. Have freedom to mold us and to shape us and to challenge us and to encourage us and to strengthen us, Lord, uh, with your word and by your Holy Spirit, Lord. Uh, help us to be teachable and humble before you. And Lord, allow me to be your messenger, to be faithful, Lord, to, to preach and to teach, Lord, what you have revealed, we ask in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want you to notice verse 30. We left off with this last time. It's kind of like the, the end of a hard message, a hard encounter that Jesus had with the Jews in particular and uh, challenged them by basically saying, listen, I, I've given you everything you need to know, but you have chosen to reject it. But even in his interaction with those Jews, it says in verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Now listen to what Leon Morris, um, a commentator, uh, says about the passage that we are looking at today. He says, this section of discourse is addressed to those who believe and yet do not believe. Clearly they were inclined to think that what Jesus said was true, but they were not prepared to yield him the far-reaching allegiance that real trust in him implies. This is a most dangerous spiritual state to recognize the truth uh, that truth is in Jesus, and to do nothing about it means that, in effect, one ranges oneself with the enemies of the Lord. So to recognize what Jesus is saying is true, to recognize that what is contained in the Word of God is true, but to do nothing about it doesn't mean you're closer to God. It actually puts you more in the camp of being an enemy of God because you are knowledgeable of the truth, but you choose to set it aside and choose to ignore it. Now what's interesting in this particular chapter is this, that those who said that they believed, as we read through this chapter, we're not gonna read all of this chapter, but I'm just gonna highlight some things, are described in the following ways. They are enslaved to sin, they're identified by Jesus as not really loving him, they're described as children of the devil, they refuse to believe in Jesus. They're blasphemers. They're seeking to kill Jesus. So many believed, but there is something wrong, at least with a good number of them, about their belief. And we've seen this theme before. Again, jot down maybe in your notes, John 2, 23 through 25. And that's that passage again where people we're believing because they're seeing the signs that Jesus was doing, but he would have no part in it. He understood that their belief was extremely superficial. Some of the people here are believing, as he was saying these things, many believed in him, but verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed, boom, here's what he has to say. He's going to challenge them. He's going to speak to them. He's going to say some things that are directed to them because they're saying that they believe. And we have the great privilege, friends, of sitting on the sidelines and watching all this unfold and learning from the warnings that are given here. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Now his whole point in saying examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith is not to get you out of the faith. His whole point there is not to challenge the the. the, the uh, the beliefs that you know are true, that what Jesus says he promises to do, the point of him saying that is that we ought to continually question where our allegiance is based on the lifestyle we are living, the kind of mind and thinking that we have. Is it truly a reflection of the fact that we are God's children? Now, let's look at this passage one more time. Our text for today, I'm going to pick it up at verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, 
The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son, notice that's capital letter S-O-N, sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now the question is this, why is this passage important? Why has God given it to us in this gospel? All right, here, is, uh, here are three reasons I would say that this passage is given to us. Number one, to expose superficial belief. Not everyone who makes some kind of profession truly is making a genuine profession, and this passage is here to help us identify a little bit what that looks like, okay? Secondly, it is given to us to encourage genuine belief. Now, I think there are people who are genuine believers, but, but their, their faith and their belief is childlike, it's, it's, uh, um, it's small, and they have questions, and they're easily confused, and there's doubt, and there's struggle, and so there's a need here to encourage and to strengthen that genuine belief. But I, there's also this need, I think, to explain what genuine belief actually looks like and how you can identify it. Okay, so it's not, it's not just this, this warning out there for those who have believed. I think for us and for those who are reading this and those who have been listening to all the evidence and, and, and recognizing what Jesus is revealing here, this is a means of encouragement. It's also a means of explanation so that those who are listening to, the, to the, the, the message of Jesus will come to the place of truly being his disciples. Now, I want you to notice that in this passage, Jesus will reveal for us three marks of a true disciple, okay? That's really gonna be our focus here, three marks of a true disciple. And I want you to notice verse 31. It says there, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So it, Jesus is using this language. If X, Y, Z takes place, then you are truly my disciples. Now, jump down, if you would, please, to verse 36. So if the Son has set you free, you will be free indeed. There's this whole idea of being free and, and, and freedom that is truly free. That's the idea. It's really free. We have a picture here, then, of Jesus describing for us what a true disciple looks like how a true disciple is indeed a disciple, okay? That's the idea, that's the picture, and this language is used um, a, a number of times in this text. And so this morning, I wanna look really at three, uh, three statements that I think that this text is, is allowing us to see about marks of a true disciple. And it really flows on these three words, abides, nodes, and the, the last word is understands, but, but it's not, specifically laid out in the text, but its implication is there clearly for us to see. So the first mark of a true disciple is the true disciple abides in God's word. Abides in God's word. What does the word abide mean? It says here, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. What does it mean to abide? Literally, it means to continue in or to remain in. So if you abide, if you continue, if you remain you are my disciples. You are truly my disciples. In other words, this, this initial superficial faith, just as if it's here just for a moment and then it's gone, and there's some parables that talk about that, right? The parable of the soils and the seed and things that grow, but they're just there for a little bit. But if it remains, if it continues, then truly you are my disciple. But notice what the verse says specifically. If you abide, you are disciples, not you will be disciples, okay? In other words, abiding is the evidence of being a disciple, not the means to being or becoming a disciple. That's really important. It's not saying, oh, if I abide, if I just abide longer and, and, I, and I do it harder and I, and I remain, you know, steadfast in this thing, then maybe I will be a disciple. No, 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 no. Once you stepped over the threshold of conversion, you became a disciple. And the evidence now of true discipleship is the fact that you do remain. It is a statement saying, if this, then you are. Not if this, then you will be. Huge difference. And it changes how we view our Christian walk because the moment 
you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, there's a couple of things that happened. You were justified. Can I say this? Please hear this. You are, and you will never be, any more holy or justified or righteous in the future than you are today. Because it's not your righteousness that's the issue. It's Christ's righteousness that is the issue. The moment you accepted him as Lord and Savior, you were covered with his righteousness. That means that God looks down at you, but he sees you through the lens of the righteousness of Christ. You have been declared righteous. So you don't have to now try through your Christian life to somehow prove to God how righteous you are. You already know that you're not, but that you are because of Christ's righteousness being placed on you. And too many believers will say, yeah, I want Jesus to be my Lord and Savior, and they'll receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. They'll enter into the family of God, but they live their lives in such a way that they don't actually believe what is true about their position. They're still trying to prove to God, look at me. Look how I'm pleasing you. Look how, how I'm showing you my, my love. And, and they want to somehow uh, you know, live in, 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 this, in this way where they're trying to appease God with their lives. They're somehow just going through life. Rather than resting on the truth of, of their position, they want to perform so that God can somehow at the end say, ah, well done. And that well done being saying, you know, basically saying, aha, you have reached this pinnacle of holiness. No, we haven't, not at all. The only holiness we have is in Christ, okay? So there's a distinction there. So to remain means to continue in, to remain in, uh, that idea of abide, I should say, means to continue in or to remain in. Now, specifically, what does it say here? This verse tells us the what that the true disciples are to, re- to, to be abiding in. My word, he says. Well, whose word? Jesus' word. Well, specifically, if you want to say specifically what is Jesus saying here, if you continue and if you remain and if you abide in my word, my teachings, things like that I am the bread from heaven, that I am the water of life, that I am the light of the world, that I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that I am the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah. You see, these are all themes that we've looked at so far that clearly Jesus has been teaching those that are around him. If you believe these things and you remain in them, you hold on to them, you're staying with them, then it's clear that you are truly my disciples. Now, it's important that we note that the what is important here, but it's also important for us to see that a true disciple is marked by his desire and practice of abiding. So it's not just the fact that yeah, I, I believe these things. It's not just the fact that I went someplace and I, and I wrote them, you know, I signed on the dotted line, I believe these things. It's that you are in your heart attributing those things to your life and you're living in light of that as you walk in your walk toward Christ-likeness. Another way of saying it is this, that you are, um, sorry, um, that you are basically living in your element. You're, you're in your element as a child of God. To abide then in the word means that the word is your element. That's where you love to be. Let me try and illustrate this in a number of different ways. When I was um, a counselor at camp, Camp Kobiak was the place that I was a counselor, and I remember, this is years ago, but I, I don't know why, oh, I do know why, you'll understand in a second. I remember these two boys, all right? David and Daniel Easterly. I hope they're not related to any of you, but David and Daniel Easterly, older brother, younger brother, and I remember them specifically because they were the kind of kids that if you were playing a game, they were just full throttle. When you're memorizing verses, they were you know, sucking down the verses, quoting them, throwing them out there. When it was time to eat, they were just you know, sucking all the food down. They were just aggressive in everything that they were doing. But one of the things that marked David and Daniel Easterly was that they came to camp in this outfit. Each of them had identical outfits, but they were different colors, and they were matching shirt and short Hawaiian outfits, okay? Now, they wore these to bed. They wore them at games. They wore them to chapel. They wore them when they went swimming. I think even if they went and took showers, which I didn't think they did, they would have worn their outfits 
than two. Those pieces of clothing for them that week were their elements. If you said, hey, take off your clothes, get changed. Oh, no, I don't want to do that. I'm comfortable with what I have on. These little for parents who send off their kids to camp, right? Now, I'm comfortable with what I have. I want to keep these clothes on. And so you could always know where Daniel and David Easterly were because they had these hideous Hawaiian outfits on. It was their element. Now, friends, you know what it's like? You have, you have certain garments that you're really comfortable with. Oh, this jacket. I love this jacket. Oh, you know, oh, why are you wearing it now in the middle of summer and it's hot outside? Because I'm comfortable in my jacket, right? We, we have things like that. And, and there's a sense, listen, there's a sense that what's going on here is this righteousness of, of Christ is our clothing and we are learning to be comfortable everywhere we go in this, these garments of righteousness. Now for others, they, they may look at it and say, that's kind of hideous. What are you wearing that for? But they are Christ's clothes that are placed on us. They are his righteousness that are placed on us. And, and we are in our element. The idea is that we are to be in our element wearing the righteousness of Christ. Let me put it another way. Um, I've forgotten her first name, but the, the swimmer in the Olympics by the last name of Franklin, remember? Missy Franklin, one of the things that she said, if you remember, she, she did a, a, a heat for the 200 meters, of, you know, pre to, to get into the final, and like 10 minutes later, she does, she does the final for the 100 meters, and you know, she quickly, after the, the 200 goes, and she's, she's in that wading pool or whatever, and then she gets out and swims the, you know, makes an Olympic record, and, and she was interviewed afterwards, and she said, you know, I, I feel at home in the water. Now, now some, some kids during the summer are like this, right? Get out of school, and now it's time to get in the pool. Or now it's time to go to the lake. And they're like frogs for the summer, right? Like just anything that has them to do with water, that's their elements. That's where they are comfortable. That's, what, that's the environment that they like to be in because they're, they've enjoyed it. They, 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 they feel at home in that environment. A number of years ago, um, I took a, a missions trip with a bunch of young people to Miami, Florida. My wife remembers it well. And I remember on the way down, we were in Buffalo, New York. We're driving down, we stopped a couple of places. We stopped in Georgia and we got out and it was Hicksville, Georgia and it was hot. It was like, okay, this is rough. But then we got back in the van, air-conditioned van, drive all the way down to Miami, get out of Miami. We opened the door and it's like, <gasps> I mean, it was like being on a different planet, you know, because there's so much humidity in the air. And it took you a while, probably about half an hour, just for your body to kind of adjust and acclimate and stuff. But after we did that, we were running around, you know, the, the southern Florida area, and we were doing ministry. You didn't think about it. Why? Because we have been accustomed to that element, that arena, that environment that we're in. All right? One more one to think about. Again, just, uh, you know, in, in life, I've, I've been on a number of canoe trips going down certain rivers. And, I, you know, the, here's how it typically goes. You know, everyone that's part of the group, youth group, church group, whatever, you stop and you listen to the instructions they're giving about, this is an oar, this is a canoe, this is a, you know, a safety uh, flotation device. You learn about those things and how to, how to maneuver it, and finally you get your canoe and you get your partner, whether you chose that partner or what was chosen for you, and you get in that canoe and it's your canoe. And you begin to learn that canoe, and you start going down the river and you start experiencing, you know, different turns and difficult, you know, problems and then there's this, this log that's in the way and you got to somehow get around it or a duck and then you get on a sandbar and but th this this canoe now becomes your home becomes your place of safety right I want to stay in this canoe you know and then there's those people that you know they come by and they want to splash you with water and they want to get water in your canoe and like no stay away from my canoe and this is my canoe and I'm going down this river in my canoe and and there's almost a sense of even if you all pulled up to a place to stop and have lunch you don't want to get in anyone else's canoe you want to get back in your canoe because you know your canoe and you know the environment you become comfortable with it it is it is the environment um, that has now become your element I'm just giving you a number of different illustrations here to help you understand 
it help us hopefully understand that to abide in the word means that we are allowing ourselves to remain in a context to be breathing, to be swimming, to be clothed, to be in this canoe with a purpose in this environment. It's, it's just learning to be, be comfortable in what God says that we are to be uh, placing ourselves in, in particular, in his word. Jesus isn't saying here, if you say you believe and can sign on this line agreeing the things that you believe, then you are truly my disciples. He is saying, if the word of God is your element, your air, your clothes, etc., and you continue in them and remain in them, then you are my disciple. That's the first mark. Okay? Here's the second mark. The disciple knows the truth. It says, and you will know the truth. The first mark then of a true disciple is that he or she is abiding in God's word. The next mark flows out of that reality and cannot bypass that first mark of abiding. The person who is abiding in his word is now knowing the truth. Now to read something like this is pretty audacious, especially in the context of our postmodern era. In fact, this is radical thinking that you will know the truth. But that's what Jesus said. And I believe what he says. If we abide in his word, we will know the truth. Now listen to the following passages of Scripture. John 1, 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Then we have John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Ephesians 4.21, the Apostle Paul says this, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So two principles, just from those few verses and the verse that we're looking at here that are going to help us. Number one, Scripture is the revelation of, of the truth. It is in the word of God where we find truth revealed, right? We go to the word and the word of God reveals truth to us. Now it comes in all sorts of different forms as principles, as statements. I mean, uh, Psalm 119, there's all sorts of different words that are used to describe the word of God, right? Can you name off a few? Testimonies, statues, precepts, commandments, Right, I'm just, it's just talking about the word of God and all the way it comes to us as, as truth. But contained in that truth then is this understanding that Jesus is truth incarnate. He came to this earth and he is described in these verses as himself either containing the truth or being the truth. So we have the truth in the word of God. Jesus himself is the truth. Okay? And that's why it's so amazing as we go through the Gospels and we get to a place like John 18 um, and we hear the words of Pilate. Here's Pilate talking to Jesus and it says in verse 38 of John 18, Pilate said to him, what is truth? And yet Jesus, who is truth incarnate, is standing right in front of him. I mean, the, the, the build up to that in the, in the Gospel. Just revealing Jesus as truth and truth and truth. And now he's standing in front of Pilate is absolutely amazing. But now notice again verse 32 in our text. You will know the truth. The word know is the Greek word gnosko. Now Greek word gnosko um, isn't simply knowledge, head knowledge, but more accurately knowledge that comes through experience. I want to be careful here that we don't go off on a tangent, but it's important for us to recognize this. What that means is not the same thing as saying experience is the best teacher, because I don't think that's true. I don't think in order for you to really understand something, you have to experience it to be true. I can tell you about it. I can read you stories about it. I can show you a movie about it. But you don't want to step on hot coals, right? I mean, you can believe someone, right? 
And if someone does a good job of teaching you that, then that's a pretty good experience you have just experienced. You don't actually have to step in it yourself to know that it's a bad thing to do. What it does mean then is that our ability to come to a knowledge of the truth is not self-directed or self-instructed. No, we have the best teacher of all. He is the Holy Spirit who abides in us. So the best way to learn about something that you have never experienced is to have a knowledgeable teacher guide you through the experience. And that's why if you're going to go you're going to go on a you know, whitewater rafting. All right, you get there, and you're like, oh, I have no idea what I'm supposed to be doing. And the guy just kind of gets up and says, you know, just hop in the dinghy, and we'll see you at the bottom. No, I would like some guidance, some instruction to know what to do, when to do it, how to do it, what's out there, and how I can see it. I mean, you want a guide who's experienced, who will actually help you. And that's why I remember a number of years going whitewater rafting in one scenario, and in each of our rafts, we had a guide. And as we're going down, the guide really, he had a paddle, but he didn't do much paddling. He did that, you know, he let us do all that. But he would tell us, okay, around the next corner is this rapid, and you're going to have to come in from the left-hand side, and then when we get to a certain place, I'm going to yell at you, you know, paddle right, paddle right. And by the way, if I'm yelling at you, that's a different thing than yelling to you, and don't get mad at me if I'm yelling to you because we need to paddle right and all that. I mean, so he's, he knows what he's doing. He's experienced, and we're listening. We're saying, okay, I'm going to follow you. So to know by means of experience doesn't necessarily mean that I have to personally experience walking down that path. What it does mean is that I have been guided by an experienced teacher who has imparted to me the truth. You understand that? So to know by means of experience does not mean that I have to actually have gone through it. It means by experience of the Holy Spirit giving me wisdom, giving me insight, helping me understand what that truth is. Here's how John speaks about it in his first letter, John chapter one, verse no, sorry, John chapter two, verse twenty-seven. But the anointing, and insert there the Holy Spirit that you have received from Him, that would be the Father, abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing, again Holy Spirit, teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie just as it is taught to you, abide in him. So the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to teach you, is to guide you, is to, is to reveal to you truth, and you can trust him. So here's, here's, here are the principles that we've had so far here under this heading. All right? If a person is abiding in the words of Jesus, it reveals that he's truly um, a disciple of Jesus, not just a believer, but a disciple. And that person, secondly, will know the truth. Well, how? Well, Scripture is the revealing of truth. Secondly, Jesus is truth incarnate. But the third thing is this, the Holy Spirit guides and teaches us the truth when we are abiding in Jesus and his teaching. Now, there's the logical progression here. I'm just trying to help us walk through the logical progression. Right? It's the knowledge of the truth comes as a result of abiding in that truth or the word that reveals that truth. So let me summarize it this way. The true disciple continues to live his or her life comfortably in the element of God's word, wearing it, breathing it, allowing it to shape and fashion them. Secondly, the true disciple is, as a result of abiding, grows in his or her knowledge of the truth, truth in scripture about Christ, and truth because of his union with Christ, which is ultimately from the ministry of the Holy Spirit who abides in us, all right? Now, here's the last part, the last mark, you might want to say, of a true disciple, and that is true disciple understands freedom. Now, what is freedom? Where does this freedom come from? Now, this is a text of Scripture that is often found on the crest of Christian institutions to emphasize that education truths or educational truths will set you free. But friends, that's not what it's talking about. The truth will set you free, but what does that actually mean? Now, if you're like me, if you watch TV or you've listened to politicians, you'll know that this is often misquoted. I remember watching one daytime talk show host who is no longer on TV saying very passionately, yes, 
the truth will set you free. And as a pastor and someone who loves the word of God and the gospel, the you know, level of anger starts to boil. And then I hear a politician talking about whatever program they have, and they say, the truth will set you free. And my you know, blood boils again. And why? It's not sinful anger, but it's because statements like that, that when they just take a, a little portion of a, of a text of Scripture and they throw it out there and they apply it to whatever they want, means that they are eclipsing the power of that statement, which is revealing that the truth that sets you free is the truth of the gospel. But that's not what they mean. I wish it was what they meant. In fact, if you look at it and they're interpreting it that way, what they're saying is absolutely true. Listen to it, but that's not what they mean. What is the truth that sets people free? It is this gospel. It is what Jesus has been revealing all along to the Jews, who he is and what he's come to do. So when the truth embraced and it is evident because the disciple is abiding in it and is therefore growing in that truth, the end result will be freedom. So these marks are, they're built on each other, abiding in the truth, all right, knowledge of the truth, and the end result is an understanding of what freedom looks like and feels like and is. Because of the gospel, listen to this, we are free from falsehood. We can now because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit and our understanding of the word, can, we can now discern truth. We are able to discern truth. Uh, we are free from Satan. It's not that he's no longer around. It's just simply we're, we're, we're no longer under his power. We can resist him in Christ. We're no longer condemned because we are declared righteous in Christ. See, we're free in Christ. We're no longer condemned. We're, we're, we're free from judgment. All of the Father's just wrath was poured on Jesus, not on us. It was poured on him. So it bounces off of us, and we're protected. But it's paid for, and it's satisfied in Jesus. We're free from death, not dying, but we're free from that ultimate separation with God. And dying is simply the door to the next step, the next stage that we have in our relationship with God. So we are in bondage, but now because of Christ, because of his death, his burial, and his resurrection, we are now free. Write down Galatians 5.1. Paul lays it out very, very clearly. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. He sets free. In other words, the moment I embrace Christ as my Lord and Savior, boom, psh, I am now free. It is for freedom that Jesus Christ has loosed the bondage of sin, its power over my life, and he's ushered me now into this arena, this atmosphere, this, this uh, uh, circumstance that is called freedom, and I, I need to be abiding in it, I need to know it, and I need to understand it. I need to live in light of it. So to, here, here's the issue, here's the problem. Though. To embrace Jesus' words here means that we must embrace that our status without him is slave. And this is where the rest of the passage blows out. If truth will set you free, that means that you are not free before. You were under the yoke of slavery, but Christ came to set you free. And Paul tells us that we do not need to submit again to that yoke of slavery. So how do the Jews respond to that message? Well, it's up there. The Jews deny it. Notice what they say. Verse 33, and they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now, first, when you read that and you have any inclining of history, um, you have to ask yourself, how could they even make that statement? What Jesus is saying here is incredibly profound, but the Jews push it aside, say, there's no way that you can identify as slaves because we have never been enslaved to anyone. Don't they even know their history? Enslaved in Egypt. 
under the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, the Syrians. And now, as they wrestle their hands in their pockets and pull out a coin, it has the picture of Caesar on it. They're enslaved to Rome. Now, that would be the obvious answer. We might say they're blind, which means that they're delusional, um, they're, they're deceived, and there's certainly elements of that there. But the Jews actually believed that, their sla- that the slavery that's being talked about here is the slavery that comes as a result of um, abandoning their ethnic or religious identity. Even though they have been under the yoke of all these different empires, they're saying here, we have never abandoned the fact that our father is Abraham. We are still Jews, and we still have this ethnic lineage going on. Now, there is a side to that that's very admirable. You look at the history of the Jews. It's, a, it's not a pretty picture, is it? I mean, it's just not a pretty picture. But Jesus here is not talking about their, their ethnic uh, bondage, their religious bondage. He's talking here about spiritual bondage and spiritual freedom. So Jesus counseled them with some words of great importance. I, I say importance because he says in verse 34, truly, truly, I say to you, truly, truly, this, stop, I gotta hear, listen to this, I got something important to say. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So when we continually sin, we become enslaved by that sin. That's the general principle here. We're in bondage, we're entangled, we're under sin's power. But it is the truth that sets us free from sin's power. It is the gospel that sets us free from sin's power. They continually sinned in many ways, but in particular by their constant unbelief. So they were in bondage to sin. It was a sin of unbelief, but Jesus is hammering that through the gospel. And they were in such bondage to their unbelief that they could not accept that they were truly slaves to sin. They could not accept what Jesus was saying about them and their condition, about who he was and and what he had come to do. So the point is this. In order to be truly free, we must accept that we are enslaved. And this reveals to us two key areas where the Jews were enslaved. First of all, they were in bondage to their own ignorance of the truth. They were not listening to the truth. And therefore, they were in ignorance of that truth. Even when Jesus lays it out for them again and again and again, they're still showing their ignorance of it. Secondly, they're they're in bondage to sin. They're in bondage to their sin, and they are continuing in that sin. To be a slave means that you are to be totally under the control of another and unable to free oneself. And so Jesus gives an illustration again, compassionately to help them out. Verse 35, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. The slave may be in his house right now, but he has no rights as an inheritance. He has no rights about his future. He is a slave. He can be sold in a second. He might happen to be in the house at that point in time, but he is not guaranteed that he will stay in that house. The son However, the son in the context of this has a guarantee because he is a, an inheritor. He has an inheritor. He has, rightful, uh, uh, he has rights to stay in that house. And so there's a picture here that, you know, that the Jews here are, are like slaves. They're in bondage, but in, in the economy of God, they're there, but they are at this point of warning where it's going to be like, listen, unless you believe, you will not receive an inheritance. But those who have truly believed are like sons who have an inheritance, who are in the house, so to speak. And that's why when we read verse 36, it just kind of wraps things up. So if the Son, capital S-O-N, sets you free, the Son, Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Messiah, if He sets you free, you will be free indeed. You're a slave. In a house. But that son can buy you back and can give you your freedom. And as believers, that freedom isn't now you can go free and do whatever you want. No, that freedom is to come and stay in the house and be a part of the family of God with full rights 
as a member of the family and the recipients of an inheritance. But they deny it. Unbelief also denies it. Ask the average unbeliever on the streets to describe Christianity and, and you are likely to hear a response like this. Christianity is a man-made religion of do's and don'ts, rules and standards of holiness that must be kept here to in order to gain status with God. Right? I don't want to place myself in a religion that binds me to a set of rules and regulations. I want to be free. I want to be free to do what I want to do. And if we suggest to that person they are in bondage, they snicker and they resist the idea. The more enslaved they are to their sin, the more they resist any wisdom and counsel to the contrary. Because they think their ability to make a choice is freedom. That's not freedom. Because they are in bondage. This is what scripture teaches. This is what Jesus says. If you lovingly counsel someone who is an alcoholic, they will often reply, me, an alcoholic? No, not me. I can stop anytime. I'm free. I, I, you know, I, I have control of this. It's okay. Really? You lovingly counsel someone who's flirting with sensuality, and they will reply, "What me? You must be kidding. There's nothing, nothing wrong with what I'm doing anyway. You, you're, you're just too stuffy. You're too old-fashioned to understand this." They do not want to be challenged. And friends, I'm not talking about them out there. I'm even talking about us in here. Whatever the sin is that we think is so okay to have is just a reflection of the fact that we do not want to believe what God says about it. Tell Samson, while he's grinding grain like a donkey, that your sensuality wasn't going to put you in bondage at all. If he could speak while he's grinding, I'm sure he'd have some words of wisdom for us all. But flirting with sin takes you down a path of being desensitized and placing yourself back in bondage again. The point here is this, that oftentimes, not only does the Jews say, you know, we, 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 we deny that there's this freedom, but generally speaking, man without God denies it. Doesn't want to acknowledge that they are in bondage at all. But that is their state. Now, look, the last thing here is this, the true disciples as true disciples, we embrace it. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. How many of you here actually want freedom? If you are a child of God, if the Son sets you free, if Jesus Christ, because of what it did on the cross, dying in your place, taking upon himself the sin, all the sin that you've committed, past, present, and future, and, and, and as a result, was that sacrifice once for all that made a payment for your sin in particular, ushered you into the family of God, you are now free. He is the one that did that for you. And if that is true, then you are truly free. You are truly his disciple, but you are truly free. So, we who are disciples of Christ are truly free God's standards of holiness, God's warnings to us, God's instructions concerning godliness are all ways God loves us into staying in his son so that we can live lives that are truly free. One of the most profound truths that we can consider is this. If you are a child of God, as I mentioned before, you are as righteous now as you will ever be. You don't have to do, do any performing for God. He did all the performing in sending his son to die on the cross. Now, when God looks down, he looks down through the, the clothing of his son. Let me ask you a question. Whether you like this person or not, um, LeBron James is a good basketball player. Agreed? Okay, we got one affirmation, one bold affirmation then. Okay, very good, all right? Um, what makes him a good basketball player? Well, he can shoot well. True. He can dribble well. True. He can dunk well. True. He can wear headbands really cool. True. I'll tell you what makes LeBron James a good basketball player. 
Number one, he knows the rules of basketball. And he exercises his gifts within the context of those rules. And he knows that even though he could do it, that dribbling down the court and jumping up into the stands into the fourth bleachers there and shooting a three-pointer from out there may look good, but it will not count. Why? Because he doesn't have the freedom to do that. There is a boundary there, and that boundary provides order, it provides consistent understanding. It helps the game to be enjoyable. And in order to play the game, some organization, some institution, some group of people sitting around a table said, these are the rules for basketball. And in order to play well, you must stay within the rules. So what if LeBron one day said, you know, I'm in the NBA. You know, what? we're going to go on strike. We're going to change the rules. Now you can step outside of bounds and you can score. You know, now when you dunk, it's going to be four points. You know, and on and on it goes. No, 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 you can't. Why? There's no freedom to do that because here are the rules. He is in his element when he knows the rules and he applies his gifts in the context of those guidelines and those parameters. Call them rules. I mean, a guy steps out of bounds in, in basketball. He doesn't go to the ref and say, that's a really dumb rule. Why are you confining me all the time in these rules, 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 rules? The guys on ESPN are saying, you know, we shouldn't have so many rules in basketball because they're just really destroyed. They're necessary, and there's freedom with those rules. Let me change the story a little bit. It's now the Olympic Games. Michael Phelps is getting ready to jump in with one of his races, and so he jumps in. Now, we know he loves the water. We know he's a good swimmer, but he has a lane, right? And that lane has arbitrarily been chosen for him. So he's in lane seven. But you have uh, the other guys, Ryan Locke or whatever, He's, he's ready, he's, he's there, he's ready to go, and they jump in. And Phelps says, you know what, I've got to do this right. I'm going to spin down there and back however many times it is. I'm going to keep going, I'm going to stay in my lane. But Locke says, you know what, I want to swim freely. And he starts swimming, you know, at a diagonal all over the place here. And he actually beats Phelps to the end. And he says, I won. And they say, you may have gotten here first, but you're disqualified. Why? Because you didn't stay in the lane. What do you mean stay in the lane? I'm in the water. I love being in the water. I want to be free to swim wherever I want. Yeah, but there are parameters that are there for a purpose in the sport of swimming. Now, I'm just trying to give some perspective here. We often look, and, and unbelievers often look at Christianity. They say, oh, rules and standards and guidelines. Oh, wait, Right? But if we truly are abiding in the word and we know the truth and the truth contains warnings and, and parameters that are there for our benefit, we understand that as we grow in that, all of those things are there truly so that we can live freely for the glory of God. You know, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof. Well, reproof happens when you've stepped out of the path. You've swum out of your lane. And someone needs to walk over and say, listen, you need to get back on the path. And so correction is telling them how to get back on the path, and then you continue on in righteousness. It's all saying the safest place, the most wonderful place to be is in this path of freedom that God has created for us. And that all is a result of the fact that Jesus Christ accomplished everything for us on the cross. You've been declared righteous. That begins your sanctification process. And so now you're walking your Christian walk in such a way that you're enjoying the freedom that you have in Christ. So friends, there's three things I think will help us just wrap all this stuff up. We've seen the three marks then of, of a true disciple. He abides in the word. He, he um, knows the truth and he understands his freedom are three things. Number one, concluding thoughts. We must believe the gospel, the whole gospel, the complete gospel. It is necessary to believe what Jesus Christ has done and to affirm it and to receive it and to absorb it and to rest on it. It's the first thing. All right, the next stage is this. And these, these are all very obvious. We must be students of the word. Why? 
because we are in this process of growth and we're, we're remaining in it and we're, we're learning as we go along and as we remain in it, we learn more truth and we are solidified in more areas and we understand our freedom in a greater way. So being students of the word is not saying, well, look at me, I know more scripture than you. It's, it's, it's the growth that comes as a result of having the, the truth of God uh, wash through you and fashion you and shape you so that you can move in such a way toward that godliness that he has called you to. And the last thing is this. We must be obedient to God's word. It's not just saying, yeah, I know the truth. It's there for a reason. It's that James 3 passage, right? Or is it James 2? Yeah, you, you look at yourself in the mirror of God's word and say, nah, I'm not gonna change that. He wants you to be obedient to the truth. Being obedient to the truth then places you in the path of freedom. If you are obedient to God every day, you would be further down the path of experiencing greater freedom in your walk with him. I say that because we are also limited by each other's sinfulness. And that hinders us too. So friends, are you a true disciple? Where do you enter into this, these marks? Do you abide? You know the truth? Are you understanding your freedom? There's a lot more to say about those issues, but I, I trust that as we have wrestled with them today that we will find strength and guidance and help. Lord, help us today. We are so thankful that from one week, Lord, where it seemed like there's this, this message of, 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 of difficulty and harshness and, and these, these warnings that Jesus gives to these Jews, that now as we move into this particular paragraph, Lord, that you have given us, uh, Lord, some hooks to hold on to, to identify um, whether we are truly your disciples. Lord, we, may we honestly ask ourselves, are we, are we abiding, are we remaining? Is, is the word of God, are the things of God, the, the atmosphere, the element in which we are living our lives? Lord, do we love it? Do we want it? Do we enjoy it? And are we growing in it? Lord, and as a result of that, Lord, are we people who, who are pursuing knowing the truth? And are we coming to places where truth is, is, is being understood and, and lights are going on? And Lord, you're just, you're teaching us through your word, by your Holy Spirit. And then, Lord, are we people that understand our freedom? Or are we in bondage to things that we should not be in bondage to? Because we, we haven't the knowledge, Lord, of your word to come to that conclusion. So, Lord, help us to assess, Lord, the things that we need to be doing, that, that your Holy Spirit would, would grip us and, and drive us, Lord, to truly apply your truth so that we can have the kind of walk with you, Lord, that, that truly is free, knowledgeable, and is remaining, Lord, for the duration of our life on this earth and into, into eternity. Lord, help us today with these things we ask in your name. Amen.